0: I want to thank our sponsor Aviate Watchers who create timepieces to seek the honour of both the aircraft and the untold story of the Airmen who have dedicated themselves both in and out of the cockpit to bring these incredible machines to life. They give the customer a deeper look into the shape and form of an aircraft and tell some of the incredible stories behind aviation to help draw out the brand. The vision is to produce watches that are functional yet enjoyable to wear which also tell a story of both man and machine make sure you head to their website at aviate.com to check out all their amazing timepieces. Thank you
1: and enjoy. My poster said you've done well, well at Valley. What would you like next? And I said, well, I've not done single-seat air defence before, knowing that Typhoon wasn't in service, wasn't going to be anytime soon, and knowing that the RAF had no single-seat fighters. But remember the, the lightning link? I'd always wanted to fly the lightning. So I thought, well, let's get this single-seat thing nailed down because I missed out on it, I thought, at the start of my career. And also, if I ask for single-seat air defence, it means it's an exchange with perhaps the US Navy, US Air Force, F-16, F-18, something along that uh, that cut of that jib, really. And so I got a phone call from the poster. He said, John, you've got your wish, mate. I've got you a single seat air defence exchange. I said, oh, fantastic. Do I have to learn a language? And he went, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you have to learn a language. I went, oh, brilliant. So it's not the American Navy. It's not the American Air Force. Norwegian, F-16 Norway, no. French, Mirage 2000 Delta no. Italian AMX, no. Belgian F-16, no. And I'm starting to run out of ideas now. And he says, let me help you. Jack speak. (laughs) You're going to have to learn Jack speak. Oh, the Navy, sea area. Goodness me, I never never even thought about that. (laughs) Do you know what? That would work.
0: You were happy with that. That
1: would work, Yeah. yeah. So... I bit his hand off, <laughs> to be honest, and uh, and so that was it. That was my the start of my career. But remember, I was a two-seat mud mover, going to a single-seat multi-role swing-role platform with undoubtedly the best pilots in the world. Now I know all these aircrew interviewers that you know and interviewees are all going to start shouting at the screen now, but it's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got there by getting in through the back door but the, uh, the guys that went through the process to be a Royal Navy Sea Harrier pilot went through the grinder and they were the best and I was you know, privileged um, and proud to have been dragged along on their coattails to be honest um, you know, I was a two seat mud mover suddenly in amongst that august company and it was amazing
0: So what were your first thoughts of the Sea Harrier?
1: As an aeroplane. I taxied out in a T-bird with Nick Richardson. He got shot down over Garajda. And we taxied out and we joined the runway almost halfway along it. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, interesting. So we started taxiing to one end and then he stopped about 1500 feet from the end of the runway. He says, okay, you had a Birmingham accident. It's okay then, JP, you have control, mate. And I, I, looked, I started turning round and he says, whoa, 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 where are you going, where are you going? I said, turning round. He said, no, 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 mate, from here. And I looked and the barrier is up. Oh. And I said, the barrier's up. And he says, mate, you'll be at 1,500 feet over the barrier, don't worry about it. <laughs> And so I slammed to full power. Well, you had to do this thing where you, you filled the galleries. You had to charge the aeroplane up almost, it felt like. You had to slam to full power, then catch it at 55, having timed it. So it was a bit of a one of these okay. things. You know, uh, 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 uh. And in the early days, that was the hardest bit, getting the stopwatch to work. And, um, and then I, I got this. the galleries filled and then came back to idle and then slammed to full power. And next thing I know, the aircraft's getting airborne, the gear comes up all on its own, the flaps go from takeoff to mid. And I'm thinking, this is amazing, this aeroplane's automatic. Then I realised Nick was doing it from the back because I wasn't doing it quickly enough. (laughs) And so that was my first uh, instructional flight in a Harrier. But my first ever flight in a Harrier was with Chris Parkhurst, and we did air combat against um, uh, Jack London, one of the finest pilots that ever lived. And we were doing um air combat we were in a t-bird obviously and it was my first ever ride it was before the course had started but chris was a u.s marine corps pilot and and again an amazing pilot but not that amazing because he managed to explode the engine on us and uh he managed to cook it um but it wasn't his fault at all of course it was just he slammed in in buffet and the aircraft uh, winced a bit and uh, so he came back to idle and then as he raised the power again it it Ended up with a locked-in surge, so we had to switch the engine off. Now, in a single-engine airplane that's got a glide ratio of about <clears throat> one to a thousand, this thing's going vertically down almost, and I'm thinking, "Oh, this is this is really tawdry." My first flight in a in a Harrier, I get a tie for me trouble. <laughs> and uh, as we pass in 15,000 feet or so, the engine starts to relight, but it lights in surge, so we have to switch it off again. So he's uh, he's saying we're having a bad day out, JP. <laughs> <laughs> I remember him saying that to me, and I'm you know getting tight, ready to to bail out. Mm-hmm. And uh, but he gets the engine relit, and we come in and do a um, a, a fixed power landing. And uh, but then I remember thinking, good God, I'm in a, an out of control shopping trolley at 200 miles an hour now. <laughs> As I was on the runway thinking, oh, this is really weird. (laughs) Didn't feel like that on the takeoff, but my first landing felt like I was in a 200 mile an hour shopping trolley.
0: (laughs) So let's talk a bit about your training and how different was it coming from the REF?
1: The first thing that I noticed was that the Navy um, understands warfare in a different way. Uh, War is chaos and managing chaos, and the Navy practices chaos every day nothing is the same twice and if it is they want to know why you're doing that because that's pointless and we would do a two-hour debrief with an hour spent on communication how we talked to each other how we built picture how we gained the air picture and how we shared it with others how we were able to generate in others the attack spirit you know you said that Mm. when you could have said that that would have given a much better picture you know, oh goodness me and that's you know,
0: unique to the royal navy
1: it, well it seemed to be right. whenever we debriefed with others they never went into comms as as deeply as the navy did but the navy um is a very um remember its, its heritage goes back to samuel pepys you know the fighting instructions they haven't changed you know the the idea of you find your enemy and you destroy him you know at first contact that's that's the Navy's ethos and that's what it'll always be I think so I was very pleased to be uh you know I I felt at home with the Navy because I I was a bit chaotic and um well very chaotic um didn't really follow uh the conventional thinking well there wasn't any conventional thinking in the Navy Mm -hmm. wasn't allowed
0: so Yes, let's go back to your trip. Like, so, how did you, like, obviously come, going to the Harrier, coming from a conventional one, was it difficult to, you know, get used to the hover and all that kind of thing?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's. Um, I found it really hard. In fact, I found everything about the aeroplane hard, um, but no harder than anybody else had. They just made it look easier than I was. <laughs> no, the aeroplane is a thoroughbred. It's brutally overpowered, stupidly overpowered. Um, for every occasion other than hovering, and so, um, and we used to ride that. We used to take that for a ride. And you know, in, I mean, everybody wants to hear about the Harrier in DACT. There are better things that the Harrier could do than DACT. But I always remember, um, you know, shocking F sixteen pilots in particular, um, whenever we came up against them on the ranges or in on exercise. You know They would come in and take a big bite out of us with that bat turn of theirs. Same with F-18. F-18 was probably a bit uh, weaker. because it, Not weaker. It's not a weak aeroplane. No, that's not what I'm trying to say. But the aeroplane just couldn't really accelerate back out of the trouble the hole it had found itself in by taking a big bite out of mm-hmm. us at the start. Um, so really to defeat a sea harrier, you've got to take us out at range. And if you didn't do that, then you were in trouble really. Um, because we could get really close in to people and and manoeuvre we could fly at 60 knots with the nose at 70 degrees nose up and use rudder to roll you know you do that in in most fighters apart from the phantom you'd be upside down (laughs) um and the sea harry had a tendency to forgive in that environment you know you'd have to when you bug out of a fight you have to push and bring the flaps up so there's a bit of faffing about and the flap lever was always behind where the the throttle was because that was always parked in the loud corner because it's not an off switch in the harrier the the throttle (laughs) um so with the throttle at full power you couldn't quite get to the the flap switch (laughs) so i I, I couldn't anyway others must have had a better technique but uh, yeah but in in terms of dact the aircraft we used to have a thing called nozzle biting where we could pull to our sustained um turn rate and then you would push a little bit just ease off the buffet and then nozzle in about 20 degrees. And you take a big bite, you take a good 10 degrees each time you did that. Um, now, 10 degrees doesn't sound a lot, but if you do it five times, then you've taken away that back turn. So now you've shot an F-16 driver who thinks he's in a turning animal, and now he's, he's up against this 1960s designed aircraft. And of course, our opponents wouldn't do their homework. They wouldn't realize that we had AMRAM and um, you know, proper missiles that we could use in the close-in fight as well as in the BVR fight. They just so went in thinking they were going to... They thought we were a bomber, really, and used to come out with really wide eyes. <laughs> and we, we used to help a lot by saying, right, okay, stop. Let's not fight like that. Let's show you you know, how to nail us, how to um, keep somebody like us at arm's distance. If you can do that, you'll survive. If you don't, you probably won't. <laughs> and, and, of course, the Navy fought, fought in an aggressive way. It was always overly aggressive, ridiculously aggressive, and that, that suited me, I think. Um, and all of the pilots could fly an aeroplane beautifully well. They were all all virtuosos of the aeroplane. They could all fly it the lightest of touches and get it to do things that, you know, weren't natural, really. <laughs>
0: so what was it like operating from the boat, the ship? I don't know what you call it. What was it like?
1: Oh, well, the hardest bit is getting the thing started. Um, It's not the flying off the ramp. The ramp's easy. Um, You just have to remember to nozzle out after you've finished and turn the water off. If you didn't turn the water off, you didn't have it for landing, and then you'd cook a motor, and then somebody would shout at you. So you didn't want that. The engineers didn't like changing motors on board. It took quite a long time, and they were the best engineers in the world. And, you know, to take as long as it did to, to change an engine, you just put them through real hardship. So you protected your engine as much as you could, not because you worried about cost of engines it was cost to your engineers you know that just didn't need to be taking the wing off to get an engine out at sea that's not really um being that fair on them so you looked after the engines for that reason more than anything else to be honest yeah the aeroplane was brutally overpowered which meant that the acceleration down the deck was was fantastic wasn't as good as a catapult launch perhaps but Yeah, we did that on our own without a catapult, thanks. (laughs) Fully laden. (laughs) What's your excuse? Why can't you?
0: (laughs) So what were the strengths and weaknesses of the aircraft? Strength radar.
1: The Blue Vixen radar was, it seemed to me to be, you know, I I was new to um, air defence radars. It seemed like alien technology to me. I could see uh, four ship I and once I did see four tornadoes in the beam at 75 miles, looking no down. Really? Absolutely. And they were showing me 90 aspect on my radar. I thought, well, that's not possible. That can't be done. And it's there. Might have been some inaccuracies. Perhaps the readout line was saying 90 when it meant 89. But the notch hadn't taken them out. So I could see them. And if you can see them, you can hurt them. And that's what we did a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, what um, weapons could it carry? Um, the whole range of, uh, of, you know, light attack weaponry. So, we tended on eight hundred squadron to have Amram, and uh, it was before ASRAM as well. So, it was the nine Mike. So that was the air air to air contingent, and the thousand pounder, uh, the one one four tail, and the one one seven. So, two Aiden cannon as well. So the cannon were. Uh, a nice addition, to be honest. A bit slow the Aiden, compared to the Mauser. Twenty-seven mite from the uh, Tornado was a thing to behold when you fired both of those in high rate. Your teeth chattered, <laughs> but uh, it was more like going over rumble strips when you fire an Aiden, <laughs> to be honest.
0: <laughs> but as our viewers can see, the cockpit it looks small. What was it like for you as a pilot?
1: Tiny. I'm a big lad. I wore a thing, C-Harry. I didn't get in it. Yeah, I tried it on for size each time. Also, we had tall guys like uh, this guy called Paul, and he was enormous big rugby player. And uh, I don't know how he got in it, to be honest. Um, but I had to duck. I've got a 99 percentile sitting height. So I've got a long body and short legs, which for a fighter pilot is pretty good going because it means you're a bit of a G monster. But <laughs> uh, my problem was getting the lid shut, so I had to lean forward, and it would always hit me on the back of the head when I brought the canopy forward. And I was always wondering about the uh, miniature detonating cord in the in the canopy. Is that going to cut my helmet open at the same time as cutting itself open? Okay. So I always had this thought, well, I've got to sit with my head right back and a straight back. That's going to put my head in contact mm. with the MDC. But I'm not going to tell anybody, because <laughs> they might stop me flying this thing. <laughs> yeah. And that isn't acceptable. Yeah, it's <laughs> my
0: so was the visibility good uh, for an air
1: to air? Yeah, yeah. You sit really high up if you if you can see behind me on the the cockpit itself. It's raised. I think it was fourteen inches. I might be. That's a guess. I mean that, that's not. Please don't write that down. It's. Uh, I think it was uh, fourteen inches. But from the GR3, which is the airframe model that uh, the Sea Harrier was uh, carved out from, um, they had to raise the cockpit to give better visibility in the six o'clock. Um, but you could get round and look behind you but that wasn't the point was it mm. we were, our job was to have people in front of us <laughs> <laughs> which we did pretty well actually
0: did yeah. you ever fly against the F-3s?
1: all the time yeah yeah what um, that with that? well the F-3 was a fantastic interceptor um, you know people decry the F-3 I, I was always a big respecter of the F-3 uh, and especially the pilots and navigators who flew it they were some of the best air defenders in the world And I always had my work cut out, to be honest, even in a Sea Harrier. But we had the longer stick, we had the AMRAM, and we could touch them before they could even see us sometimes uh, because we're not a very big radar cross section, despite having that big barn door of an intake. (laughs) So we could sneak up on people pretty well, especially if we were below them. Mm -hmm. Um, But once an F3 got his claws into you, you you were going to the merge, you were never going to outrun an F3. That was simply not possible. So the fastest thing on two wings um, so F3 was amazing it could accelerate really quickly it could get away from us quickly as well so if we were slow around a corner you know you came around the corner and you'd expect to see an F3 in front of you and it's a dot mm-hmm. but then you can just reach out and touch them with an amram and say okay you're a dot but you're dead dot <laughs> you're dead, <yeah. laughs> but it was an amazing aeroplane flown by great great people
0: so what kind of flying would you be doing from the ship would there be an average day
1: <clears throat> no no that's the whole point of chaos isn't it and um, You could find yourself going to Capafrasca Range in the morning and then in the afternoon you'd be doing DACT with some Mirages off Corsica. Um, uh, And that was normal. Normal behaviour. Everywhere you went in the carrier, the ops officer would be on the phone to somebody to pick a fight with and uh, and off we'd go. Just Um, causing trouble. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, my second flight in a sea harrier was well, the first one was um, doing air combat um, just to burn off fuel so that I could do the deck cycle to land on the deck um it was led by Bing Bong uh, Lieutenant Bing um fantastic guy uh, really took me under his wing when I first got to Invincible but that lasted about an hour uh, and then I was fledged and so the next day my boss came to me and said look uh, Rory McLean our captain has picked a fight with uh, USS George Washington he said are you looking at my pint and <laughs> and now we're having that so uh, what, what we need to do is this morning we sent uh, uh, clinky and Speedy over to uh, to pay him a visit, and they didn't notice. So they're a bit riled up, but they know where we are. So we've gone to the Gulf of Surte and we're sitting off Benghazi. They're not going to come there. <laughs> or so we thought. So he said, What we'll do, um, we'll mount a four ship alert five, which means you're sitting in the cockpit on the back of the deck. He says, But don't worry, JP, you won't go flying you and I'll stand down but we'll launch three and four at the end of the alert period they'll go flying and then we'll be replaced by somebody who can go flying because you've only done one deck landing and now you're flying in a heavyweight fighter and it's really really hot so we don't want you doing that so I'm sitting on the deck I'm strapped in I've done all the right things because it's good to practice that it's my second go remember and uh, so I'm sitting and I'm listening on the telebrief and I can hear this raid building and it's from the George Washington and the numbers are starting to clock up now and they're starting to get closer. So, you know, the range is cutting down and the Freddy's uh, voices are getting a little bit more high pitched. And then we hear start, sea Harriers, side number, 122, 126, 124, 127, I'm going. Oh, no, no, they want me to start. What's that about? So I started the engine and everything's ready and it's all humming. And then my boss taxis out onto the runway. And then I'm being taxied. Now, I'd not even had a brief on what an op launch was. And this is where you line up with your radar, almost touching the tail of the aircraft ahead. Mm. And then off he goes. And then the, the flight deck officer touches the deck, waves his little green flag, and, I, oh, that's me. So off I go. Now, I'm expecting the boss to do a left turn, followed by a 180, to then come across the front of the boat, and I join up in front of him. no. All he's doing now is nose pointing back to the fight, which is behind us, and he started the turn. So I come off the front, clean up everything, and I join on the inside of the turn. But he's at about 150 feet, and I'm underneath him, joining in the turn, thinking, "Oh, this is advanced." And we roll out, and he sorts straight into the fight. And I've got my radar on, and you know, I can understand what the sort was, um, even though you know, from the picture I was building from the Freddie was amazing. Um, and a Freddy's fighter controller Mm -hmm. sorry and uh, so I had a very good picture and when I came round the corner I could see dashes three and four getting off the front as well so they were joining behind us in exactly the same fashion that we had these are the best pilots you know these these guys do this Mm -hmm. this is my second go and so we roll out of the turn and and my boss sorts across and we, we were simulating four AMRAMS and we sort four by four side side and off we go we shoot out Winchester and turn and now the fight's behind us, and we've, we've got rid of all our missiles in about a minute. We're going, oh, now what happens? Because I've got to land now, yeah. and I haven't got any hover figures. Oh, no. Because I wasn't going flying. So I'm airborne in an aircraft that's heavier than it was yesterday in hotter weather, and I don't know what the hovering thing is. So I think, oh, well, I'll get to that. that that's going to happen at some <laughs> point. Yeah. And so I decided that I'd just burn down to no fuel, because it's not going to get better by knowing yeah, knowing the figures isn't going to get better. If you know, I might as well just burn down to nothing and then earn land. So that was my plan. <laughs> so that was typical of the navy. It was, oh come on, you know, dry your eyes, wet pants, get cracking.
0: I like that. I like that. I do like that. <laughs> yeah. So was there much banter? You being R.E.F. and obviously then being the Royal Navy.
1: All the time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I used it to my advantage. Was
0: it just you as REF on the
1: uh, there? Were, there were two on the Sea Harrier at the time. Right. Uh, another another great pilot who'd uh, come across at exactly the same time as me. And of course, we were following in the footsteps of greats that had gone from the air force to uh, to the navy. Um, and so we didn't want to let them down because mm-hmm. they were big names. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you know we we were quite keen to be big names ourselves. So we didn't want to be the uh, the runts of the litter. <laughs> so we had to. Uh, you know live up to the expectation that was always hard i mean living up to the sea harrier expectation because of the falklands um you know we're not gonna let those guys down
0: so the pressure was Never. always
1: on it's self-induced yeah. but uh you know everybody looks at you there's only eight of you on board so you know the whole ship's there because of you yeah that's,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah? That's so you're
1: not gonna let them down are you of
0: course yeah so how long did you spend on the sea harrier and how many hours did
1: you get uh four years just under a thousand hours wow um yeah, and I did a lot of time at sea, which was great as, a, as an exchange officer. But I also went to the uh, operational conversion unit as an air warfare instructor. So the air warfare instructor is the forerunner of Top Gun, because Top Gun was modelled on the Navy's AY course. Mm-hmm. And so I ran that for a little while on 899. So that was quite a privilege.
0: So it sounds like you really enjoyed your time on the Sea Harrier.
1: It was uh, the pinnacle of my career. Still is. thanks uh, But I've flown the world's best aeroplanes at what they do. The Buccaneer was the best at what it did, the Tornado was the best at what it did, the Hawk was the best at what it did, and the Sea Harrier was the world's best at what it did.
0: John, do you have any hobbies?
1: I've got a few hobbies, to be honest. Um, I like um, beekeeping. I've got 29 hives in the winter and they grow to 60 in the summer like breeding queens for um, the Buckfast um, strain of bee. So I'm not into honey, though. That's the worst job in the world. It's like you become a human post-it note for a month. So uh, I don't do the honey thing, but uh, breeding queens selling those. That's, uh, but I haven't done it for a number of years because of Flyby, because of the um, drone flying, drone training company that I run. It's uh, taken over, really. So hobbies get smaller, Flyby gets bigger. It's a linear relationship. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: Favourite aircraft you've flown?
1: Um, I find that impossible to answer. They're all fantastic for their own reasons. The one I'm most proud of flying is the Sea Harrier. The one that I tell most stories about is the Sea Harrier. But the one that I look back at with the most fondness is the Buccaneer because of the people I was with. It was the school of hard knocks. These were amazing people. Um, And, you know, we still keep in touch to this day. Um, Mainly Buccaneer, mainly Sea Harrier. So the bits in the middle, not so much. So perhaps that's because I value my Buccaneer time and my Sea Harrier time uh, more closely.
0: Is there an aircraft you wish you could have flown in your military career that you didn't?
1: Yeah, the Lightning. Yeah, I, want, I, I was all over it. I wanted to fly the Lightning. Still do. Uh, still want to go at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Twin-tube aluminium death machine. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's uh, it's still something I need to get to. Mm-hmm. And also the Spitfire. I've never flown in a Spitfire. So one day, that'll happen, no Would you doubt. actually want
0: to fly or just be a passenger in the Spitfire?
1: <laughs> oh, don't do passenger things. Not interested <laughs> in that nonsense. You want to take control. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned flyby there could you tell us about this
1: yeah i broke my neck in 2012 i had an accident uh, in a simulator i got shaken in a simulator um, and i was off work for quite a while i had a few heart attacks as well uh, just to add insult to already severe injury Um, and i needed to look for another job really i'm an airline pilot um, but i needed something as a backstop so i started flying drones And one thing led to another, and because of my credentials as a trainer from Central Flying School, I built uh, a team of uh, misfit parts uh, from Central Flying School, but from all of the three armed services. So our chief pilot is from the Army, our head of standards is from the Navy, and uh, the founder, me, is from the Air Force. And our head of safety was from the Air Force as well. Those were the four founding heads of department. Uh, We're now... You know, pretty much widely regarded as the top training school for quality. Not the biggest, but certainly the one that most people want to train with. Uh, Sometimes they have to train with others because we're quite pricey. But reassuringly expensive is what I say. Um, (laughs) But what it's done, it means that we're now influencers in the, the drone industry. And we've just won the prize for the global award for consultancy. And that's because we were the consultants that helped... Uh, skylift uav build and operate drones in support of covid19 test and trace with the nhs uh, we've now been asked by the turkish caa to help with formulating good rule sets for the turkish industry they want to be the number one uh, country in the world for drones and so they're coming to british companies to to help them do that remember uh, not uh, they don't um, need us, they can do it all on their own, but this is you know, an accelerator really to help them do that. Um, one thing that we always have to remember is that these aren't robots, these aren't unmanned air vehicles, that's a, a really bad term for them. Drone works, drones great, because everybody knows that there's a a person in the loop, and so we do the pilot training, the pilot competencies for beyond visual line of sight, so a pilot might be sitting in their bedroom flying a drone in a different continent. They might be in their gym Jams flying a drone in one continent, handing over that drone to another pilot in a third continent. That's what we do. It's mind-boggling. When it you think absolutely about it. is. But remember, these are remotely piloted aircraft. They're not robots. They don't do it on their own. One day we'll get to autonomy. But we're not there yet, and we're not going to be there for some time. There's a lot of research going on in that arena, and there's a lot of deluded people, I think, that are thinking that next year we'll be doing autonomous flights. Well, yes, okay, we'll do autonomous flights, but they'll be so small and they'll have no commercial um, opportunity until uh, the public is ready. And the only way for the public to get ready is for them to start seeing them operated professionally by pilots and then as time goes on the new technologies start to then help that pilot with decision making and um, leadership communication skills so there's no point rushing the whole process uh rush early do it twice yeah yeah so no let's get it right there's only one way to do aviation and that's the right way
0: Definitely. And can we find you online? Do you have a social media account, a website?
1: Uh, All over the place. If you Google flyby technology and NHS, you'll find us straight away. But uh, I think our website is flybydronetraining.co.uk. And our Beyond Visual line of sight flying, which is the bit where you can be in your gym Jams and fly a drone in Asia while you're sitting at home in Hartlepool... Um, (laughs) Please don't. Um, (laughs) um, That's uh, bvlosttraining.com.
0: We've just got one last question from our patrons, if you're happy to answer that. Mm. So he says, can you describe the challenges of navigating at low level in the Buccaneer and GR1? Uh,
1: The challenges for the Buccaneer were that you had a single inertial uh, navigation unit, and the navigator quite often had a Doppler, so we'd be able to work out what the drift was and that would help them calculate a the wind but the navigators in the buccaneer were home in pigeons, they weren't people <laughs> how they found their way home is beyond me you know, we would go for hundreds of miles at very low to the ground no radio aids you know, can send a signal to us because we're so low um, and so then you'd coast back in to within a quarter of a mile of where they wanted us to, and then we'd make the adjustment by looking out of the window. <laughs> uh, yeah, navigating in the Buccaneer was a real challenge. In the Tornado, we had GPS, and it was a you know a spaceship. Navigation system was always great. But over the sea, there was no way of fixing the aircraft. Um, mm-hmm. So we had a thing called a Kalman filter, which is just a software way of refining a navigation solution. Um, mm-hmm. It didn't always work for you when you're out over the sea. You need fixes for that. Mm-hmm. So... Navigation was no better in a tornado over the sea.
0: Well, John, thank you very much for coming on the show.
1: Great to be here, and thanks for inviting me.